Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Well, I would invite you to take your Bibles this morning and to turn with me to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. The last time in this study, Ruth, chapter 4, as we read together this morning this glorious ending to this epic love story. Ruth, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here. And in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, And all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate And the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, 
the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Noshin. Noshin fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. What is the most important part of any story? What's the most important part? Well, that's, that's easy. It's the ending, right? In fact, in many ways, it's the last line of a story. It's the last scene of a movie or maybe perhaps the last word of dialogue or storytelling that is oftentimes the most important, is it not? And so it got me to thinking this week, I wonder what sort of endings to stories you enjoy. Well, there might be some who would perhaps enjoy a good cliffhanger where we're sort of left hanging, wondering, with no real resolution to the story. However, my guess, my guess is that for most of us, we enjoy resolution, don't we? We enjoy a, a conclusion where all of the loose ends come together and they're just sort of tied up nice and, and neatly. Some of us might even enjoy a, a happily ever after ending like most fairy tales or, or Disney movies. But no doubt, any good story, any well-written story, it is written, it is told with the ending in mind, with the end in view. It's all leading up to the ending. And the same could be said for the book of Ruth. Ruth is a well-written story. It's a engaging story as we've seen, uh, an epic love story with many twists and turns as we've discovered throughout this book. It's building suspense and drama that has left us wondering from week to week what is going to happen next. And it's a story as we see today with a wonderful resolution, even a, a happily ever after ending, so to speak. However, the book of Ruth is also a rather surprising ending, as we see. There's a surprising resolution to this story. In fact, it actually ends quite unexpectedly, if you think about it. Because many, many might expect this story to end with a wedding, right? Oh, and a wedding. Boaz and Ruth, they, they get married and they live happily ever after the end, right? And we see that there in verse 13. That would be a, a fitting ending, would it not? Or perhaps you might have anticipated then the ending to come in verse 17, where Naomi is cradling this baby in her arms, which is quite the reversal, isn't it, from what we saw of Naomi back in chapter 1. And so then maybe 17, verse 17 would actually be where this story should end. And so then, it's really quite surprising when in verses 18 to 22, the story actually ends with a genealogy. A list of names. A genealogy, in fact, which actually reveals to us the overall purpose and meaning of this entire story. Charles Bayliss, he writes that the goal of the book of Ruth is not found in the marriage, nor in the birth of a baby. The goal of this story, he says, is found in a genealogy. Without this ending, he writes, the book of Ruth would have no literary connection to the movement of the biblical storyline. In other words, 
Take away this ending, friends. Take away this genealogy, he says, and the story of Ruth, it has no real meaning. It has no real significance. It contributes nothing to the larger story that the Bible is telling. And thus, this ending, this ending, it is important. It is crucial. It is key to understanding the overall purpose of this entire story. And so let's see if we can't discover the meaning, the purpose of this story this morning as we look at this surprising resolution. We're going to look at this ending in two parts this morning. Two resolutions I want you to see here in chapter 4. First, we're going to look at a legal resolution in verses 1 to 12. And then second, we're going to look at a family resolution in verses 13 to 22. So a legal resolution and then a family resolution. And then we'll look at some application at the end. First though, let me just give you a brief recap of where we've been. Chapter 1, remember, it began in the dark days of the judges, a time of moral decay and economic failure and hardship. Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, they, they left the promised land for the land of Moab to sojourn there because of a famine. And while living in the land of Moab, the boys marry Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah. And then tragedy strikes. All three of these men die leaving behind three destitute widows. And chapter 1 ends with this bleak description of these three women who are left empty and barren and seemingly hopeless. But then in chapter 2, a beam of light breaks into this darkness because two of these women, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, they return now to, to Bethlehem. And they return, we learn, during the barley harvest. And because of a gracious gleaning law from God, it allowed Ruth then to wander into the field of Boaz where our couple meets for the very first time. Boaz promises Ruth his protection. He pledges to provide food and provision for both Ruth and Naomi throughout the harvest season. And then, then chapter 2 ends with yet another beam of light breaking into this story as we discover that Boaz is actually a close relative of Naomi's. Chapter 2 verse 20, he's one of their redeemers. Boaz is one who is able to redeem them from all of their hardships and suffering. And then in chapter 3, we discover that after eight weeks have now gone by or so, it's also winnowing season. And we see Naomi's risky plan for Ruth in order to get Boaz's attention. A midnight rendezvous on the threshing floor, a, a rather surprising marriage proposal from Ruth to Boaz. Chapter 3, verse 9, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And Boaz he promises then to do just that. He promises to seek to marry Ruth. He promises to redeem her and Naomi. However, in verse 12, we also learn there's a problem. There's a sudden twist in our story because in chapter 3, verse 12, Boaz says he is a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer, he says, nearer than I. So someone is closer to Ruth than Boaz who's actually first in line to marry her. Oh no, right? There's a problem. And so as chapter 3 comes to a close, there's a cliffhanger, right? 
We're left in suspense wondering how is all of this going to work out? Will Boaz be able to marry Ruth? Will he figure it out? And if chapter 3 verse 13 ends that night on the threshing floor with Boaz promising Ruth that he'll settle this whole matter, notice, in the morning, the next day, then chapter 4 now opens with this very morning beginning. Scene number one, notice a legal resolution. A legal resolution, verses 1 to 12. Chapter 1 took place on the road from Moab Chapter 2, in a barley field. Chapter 3, on a threshing floor. And now, as chapter 4 begins, we see that Boaz is at the city gate. Verse 1, we find Boaz wasting no time, it seems, on his way now to the city gate, where he's going to handle this legal matter as to who will marry Ruth. Notice verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. The city gate was the center of life in Bethlehem, and it appears to be the place where business deals were done, where legal decisions were made. Daniel Block, in his commentary on the book of Ruth, he says that city gates in Palestine were complex structures with lookout towers and a series of rooms where defenders of the town would be stationed, but these gateways, he writes, also served a secondary purpose as a gathering place for the citizens of the town. This was where the official, administrative, and judicial business of the community was conducted. So, after this late night encounter with Ruth there at the threshing floor, after which I'm sure that neither of them got any sleep that night, they were just waiting for the sun to rise that morning in order to resolve this matter, notice that Boaz quickly goes into action, just as he'd promised. Then, in verse 1, notice, lo and behold... Who should pass by at that very moment but the other Redeemer? Verse 2, notice, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. It just so happened. Lo and behold, right? And in verse 1, Boaz, notice he invites this man to sit down with him. Verse 1, so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Now, what's interesting here about this guy, this other redeemer, is that he's never mentioned by name. In fact, that designation there, notice in verse 1, friend, that's how the ESV translates it, but really it, it probably means something like a certain one. It would really be sort of the equivalent in Hebrew of saying, Mr. So-and-so, or hey you, Come here. It's a way of naming him without actually naming him. So in other words, this man purposefully has no name. He's like Clint Eastwood. Some of you old Western movie lovers will get that reference. He's nameless. He has no name. In a story where it seems everyone gets a name, right? Elimelech and Malon and Kilion and Orpah and then this whole list of names even here at the end of chapter 4. But, but this guy, he has no name. He isn't even worthy of being named. And we'll see why here in just a moment. And so in verse 2, notice Boaz, he rounds up Mr. So-and-so along with ten of the elders of the city as witnesses representing now this official quorum for 
a legal proceeding. And once they're all assembled, they're all seated at the city gate, verses 3 and 4, notice Boaz lays the matter before them. Verses 3 and 4, notice, notice what Boaz does here. He begins by informing this nearer redeemer about a piece of property that belongs to their relative Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. Look there, verse 3. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. Now notice just a few interesting things we see here. Note first that I think we're meant to observe here two things about this guy Boaz. Two important things about this guy, Boaz. Number one, notice that Boaz is an honorable man. He is a righteous man. He wants things done right. He wants things done legal. He takes great care here, notice, to make sure that this is all handled in the proper legal matter. Which, friends, I think is very instructive for us, isn't it? very instructive for us in how we righteously handle business deals and legal matters. And notice the fact here also that these Bethlehem elders follow his direction as he tells them to come sit down and they sit down. Shows us, I think, that this man Boaz, of, he has great stature in this community. He is well respected in this community. Boaz is an honorable man. But the second thing is We see here about Boaz, he's also a very wise man. He's a very skilled negotiator. Notice here. He's truthful with the information, but he's very strategic here in how he communicates the information. Because notice, notice, he doesn't lead here with Ruth. No, what does he do? No, he begins with real estate. Right? Look there, verse 3. Naomi who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So notice, he begins with real estate. Why? Well, I think it's because he wants to see what this guy's going to do. But then thirdly, interestingly, note here, what's this business about Naomi owning land? Because this is, this is the first we've heard of this, Right? It appears Naomi is selling a piece of land. So what's going on here? I I thought she had nothing. Why why couldn't her and Ruth live off of that land? Well, you might be surprised to learn that I know about as much about ancient Near Eastern property rights as I do about winnowing, as we saw last week. (laughs) Which is nothing, okay? And... I agree with Ian DeGuid in his commentary when he says, it is doubtful whether a detailed digression into ancient Near Eastern property rights would be helpful in a sermon, right? You're not going to be served well by that. So suffice it to say, depending on which commentary you look at, because that word could mean selling or it could also mean reclaiming. So either Naomi, here's what's going on, is trying to sell this land because there is no male relative to inherit the property and she needs the money simply to survive. Number one, option number one. Or 
Elimelech has already sold the land previously. Perhaps before going to Moab. And Naomi's now trying to get the land back. But, but, but rather than complicating it with... You can read pages and pages and pages of commentary on this. It changes nothing to the story, okay? So, so we'll just take the ESV translator's word here for it in verse 3 when they say, Naomi is selling a parcel of land. And in verse 4, notice, for Mr. So-and-so, this seems like a pretty good deal, right? He'll get a piece of land at a good price. Yes, he gets Naomi too. He redeems her. She's well past the years of childbearing, so there's really no threat here of any heir of hers taking away his property, his possessions. So he says, notice, I'll do it. Verse 4, I'll redeem it. And we're left to think here, worst ending ever. (laughs) Right? Worst ending ever. What about Ruth and Boaz? Right? Mr. So-and-so is the hero here? Again, the narrator is playing with us. He's building suspense. Because then in verse 5, Boaz, notice, he plays his ace of spades, doesn't he? His trump card. He reveals now all of the information. Verse 5, then Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So, it appears then that marriage rights are tied to the ownership of the land in order to perpetuate the name of the dead husband in the inheritance. In other words... Boaz is saying here, so, so, so wait a minute, Mr. So-and-so. You, you, you didn't read the fine print here. You, you get the land and this old widow, Naomi, but you also, listen, you also get another widow. And not just any widow, a Moabite widow. Notice he points that out there. The Moabite, a Moabite widow. And now you're also responsible to raise up a son for Elimelech with this other widow who is still young enough to bear children since she was previously married to Elimelech's son, Malon, so that his line won't be cut off. That's the deal. It's a package deal. So now, now there is a real cost involved for this guy, right? This isn't just about real estate anymore. No, now it's about doing good to some vulnerable widows. Now it's about honoring a family name. Now it's about doing the right thing. And in verse 6, notice Mr. So-and-so says, I cannot redeem it. I cannot redeem it. I I, I cannot redeem it lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. The cost, notice, it was too high. Too much investment, too much risk, too little gain for this guy. And this is a deal breaker. And Mr. So-and-so walks away off the pages of the Bible, unnamed, never to be heard from again. And beloved, at this point in the story, we as the readers are meant to break out in applause and cheer. Right? 
And then in verses 7 to 10, notice this legal transaction then is secured, notice, notice, with a sandal and a speech. A sandal and a speech. Notice first, this legal transaction is secured with this very strange, very interesting ancient custom. Look there, verses 7 and 8. Even the author, notice, is aware of how strange this custom is perhaps for us, because notice in verse 7, the author provides us with this explanatory note for those who might not be familiar with this ancient custom. Verse 7, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. Friends, we should go back to this way of doing business deals, right? (laughs) This sure would make things a whole lot easier, right? It would save us a whole lot of paperwork if only it were this easy to buy property, to buy a home, right? Here's my shoe. (laughs) Sandals were the common footwear of the day. And so perhaps this was a symbolic gesture of owning whatever you set foot on. Maybe a reference to Joshua chapter 1 verse 3 owning what you're going to be walking on. And so, verse 8, notice to secure it, Mr. So-and-so hands Boaz his sandal. But notice also, second, that this legal transaction is secured with a speech from Boaz. Look there. Verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Don't you just love this guy, Boaz? I mean, what a man he is, right? This family is now redeemed. They are rescued with one single act, with one selfless act at great cost to himself. Everything changes for Ruth. Everything changes for Naomi. And Boaz, he is motivated, notice, by his love for Ruth, a desire here to perpetuate Elimelech's line. So, So feel this man's joy. Twice he says it, you, you are witnesses this day. And if you have any romantic discernment at all in in this, you, you see here in Boaz's statement, this romance, don't you? In fact, notice Ruth's name here is emphatic, meaning Meaning Boaz, he just accentuates here what's, what's, most importance, what's of most importance to him in this deal. Look there, verse 10. Ruth, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. And so notice, notice that for Ruth, she has now gone from destitute widow, scavenger in the field of Boaz, to now becoming his cherished and honored bride. I have bought her to be my wife. And he's settled it. He's resolved this legal matter just as he said he would. It's done. It's done. And then in verses 7 to 12, notice the entire town 
seems to break out with them in this celebration as well. Verse 11, then all the people who were gathered at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This, listen, this is incredible, folks. This is incredible. This prayer, this blessing here from, from the people of Bethlehem, this really, notice, threefold blessing here, in reality, it's actually prophetic. Isn't it? It's prophetic. Little did they know in what they are saying here. It's a prophecy speaking of things that are yet to happen. As, as Daniel Block again comments, they came to be witnesses. They left prophesying. So notice this threefold prophetic blessing. First notice the blessing for Ruth. Verse 11. The blessing for Ruth. May the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. Beloved, do you realize what they have just prayed for her? For Ruth. Don't, don't miss this. They have just prayed for Ruth, a foreign Moabite woman, enemy of the people of God, the Moabites, that she would have a place among the matriarchs of Israel. Rachel, Leah. Old Testament refresher for you. Rachel and Leah, these were Jacob's wives who would become, listen, the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. The mothers to the people of God. And thus, they're saying, may you, Ruth, May you be associated with the great mothers in Israel's history. Ruth, the Moabite. And friends, listen, she would. She would. She will take her place as one of the great mothers in Israel's history, as we'll see here in a moment at the end of chapter 4. They bless Ruth. And then second, notice they bless Boaz. Verse 11, they bless Boaz. May you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah. That's a clan of Judah. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. In other words, they're saying, Boaz, we pray that your name would be renowned. Your name would be famous in Bethlehem. And oh, my friends, listen, this prayer, it will be answered big time. It'll be answered big time again, as we'll see here in just a moment. And note that this Bethlehem name, Bethlehem, is just loaded with significance and meaning. Bethlehem would be renowned. And then third, they bless not only Ruth and Boaz, but they bless Boaz's house, his family, his entire family. Notice, notice that his descendants would become fruitful and renowned. Look there, verse 12. Becoming like the house of Perez. Verse 12. Perez. 
Perez, of course, as we saw in week one, was the son of Judah and Tamar. This clan, the line of Judah, this royal line, according to Genesis 49, of whom Boaz is a part of. That his family, his descendants, they pray, would be great. They would be renowned. And Tamar, Tamar, this Canaanite woman who also was an outsider, just like Ruth to the people of God, but who gives birth in the royal line of Judah. So notice that Ruth, this foreign Moabite, childless widow, she would be blessed, she would be fruitful with many descendants. Friends, the Lord has intervened here. Verse 12, the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Oh my. So the legal matter is now resolved. Right? And that would be a fitting ending, wouldn't it? Just end it right there. I mean, this epic love story ending here with Boaz finally getting the girl happily ever after they live, right? I mean, it seems like a nice resolution. It seems like a fitting way to end this story, does it not? But it's not. It doesn't end there. This isn't the ending. Which tells us two things, I think. Here's what it tells us. Number one, it tells us there's more that the author wants us to see in this story. There's more to this story, as we'll see in verses 13 to 22. There's more he wants you to see here than just this love story. And second, it means that Boaz and Ruth, this, this love story, it isn't the main point here. This story, their story, is actually set within a larger story. It's set within a bigger story that God himself is telling because they are not ultimately what this book is about. In fact, for us to stop here, it would be to miss the entire point of the book of Ruth. What the author wants us to see. Which leads to scene two. A family resolution. A family resolution. Verses 13 to 22. Here we see now what this entire story has been building to. Really, this is the climax. This is the crescendo. First notice, the Lord provides a son for Boaz and Ruth. The Lord provides a son for Boaz and Ruth. Verse 13. Verse 13, it seems that nine months have now passed, or so. What can happen in just a single verse, right? Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. A, lot, a lot's happening here in one verse, right? Verse 13, Boaz and Ruth marry. What a happy day that wedding day must have been. And then they consummate the marriage, Joyful time for these two who've done so righteously before God. And then verse 13, the Lord gives them a son. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now notice here, 
Notice here how the author intentionally transitions from human action, marriage, wedding night, to divine intervention. Verse 13, the Lord gave her conception. In fact, this, this is only one of two places in this entire book, friends, where we see the direct intervention of God himself, where God is directly acting and intervening in this story. And in both instances, in both cases, what is he doing? Here's what he's doing. He's displaying his loving kindness. He is displaying his steadfast love. The first is found in chapter 1, verse 6, where we saw that God's kindness was seen in bringing the famine to an end, providing food for his people. And now here, notice in verse 13, where the Lord intervenes now in Ruth conceiving this child. So, so note here the, these two direct interventions of God. They, they sort of form bookends here to this, this book, don't they? This story. Food and fertility. Bread and a baby. Why? Why these two bookends? What, what, what does the author want us to see? Beloved, here's what the author wants us to, to, to see. He wants us to see that through it all, God has been sovereignly at work. That all along, while his hand might have been hidden or seemingly absent, he is still acting, he is still working. Between chapters 1 to four and 4, there have been no dramatic miracles, there have been no direct manifestations from God, just normal, everyday events, but behind it all, God has been at work. It was his hidden hand that provided the bread in chapter 1. And now we see his same sovereign hand provides a baby here in chapter 4. As Daniel Block again comments, verse 13 is the narrator's modest way, his modest way of identifying a miracle. This conception is a miracle according to the sovereign providence of God. And I would be amiss if I didn't say on this Mother's Day that every conception is a miracle by the sovereign providence of God. And so let me just say to the mothers listening here this morning, when as you mother, you are tempted to grow impatient with your children, you are tempted to be harsh with your children, see your child as a miracle. They are a gift from God. And in verse 13, it is the Lord's miraculous providential hand at work in the lives of both Boaz and Ruth. And friend, the same hand is at work in your life today. And so the Lord provides Boaz and Ruth a son. But not just for them. Notice also, second, the Lord provides a son for Naomi. A son for Naomi. Look there, verse 14 to 17. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who's not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap. And she became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. 
What a beautiful scene. Notice that in this final scene, the narrator draws our attention not to Boaz and Ruth, as we might expect, but to whom? To Naomi. She enters the spotlight now in this final scene. Are you surprised by that? I mean, are you surprised that the final scene of this story is really all about Naomi? I mean, after all, it's the book of Ruth, not Naomi, right? Or how about verse 17? A son has been born to Naomi. I thought Ruth had the baby, not Naomi. What's that about? Is this surprising to you? Why does the author do this? Because, beloved, he wants us to see God's steadfast love toward Naomi. He wants us to see God's kindness to Naomi. That he has not forgotten her. He has not abandoned her. He has not left her as she had previously thought. And so, really, the book of Ruth has come now full circle. Right? Chapter 1, Naomi returns to Bethlehem from Moab believing Yes, that God is sovereign, but she didn't believe that he was kind. She's bitter. She's hardened by her sufferings. But now, now notice in chapter 4, she has seen the kindness of God. She has witnessed his steadfast love toward her. And this woman, this woman who returned empty, she is empty no more. Oh, listen, listen, church. The book of Ruth is written to convince us that God is not only sovereign, He is kind. Do you hear me? He's not only sovereign, He is kind. And notice this sweet reversal here for Naomi. It's quite the contrast, isn't it, from chapter 1, that she is no longer bitter, she's no longer empty, no, instead she is pleasant and full. She has witnessed and experienced the kindness of God, and the evidence of this kindness is seen now in the form of this baby that she is holding there on her lap. What a beautiful scene. And did you notice... Notice how these very same women of Bethlehem who were there when Naomi arrived back in chapter 1, they saw her bitter, they saw her hardened, hardly recognizable. Is this Naomi? They are now the very same ones who are here at the end to witness God's kind providence in her life. Verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you. He has not left you this day without a redeemer. Verse 16, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. Apparently this was the custom during this time. But probably more so just affirming the name that Boaz and Ruth had already given to him. They, they, they gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. That, that though Malon and Kilion have died, we shouldn't minimize that. It doesn't replace them. That God again has given her a son. And Naomi sees the kindness of God now in her life with, with, with all of its twists and turns through, through many 
dark and frowning providences, she truly sees now. She truly sees now the kindness of God laying there on her lap in the form of this baby. Naomi has seen firsthand that God moves in a mysterious way. And that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I love how author John Piper puts it in his book on Ruth, A Sweet and Bitter Providence. Here's what he says. At one level, the message of the book of Ruth is that the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory. But they do get there. The life of the godly is not an interstate through Nebraska, but a state road through the Blue Ridge Mountains of Tennessee. There are rock slides and precipices and dark mists and bears and slippery curves and hairpin turns that make you go backward in order to go forward. But all along this hazardous, twisted road that doesn't let you see very far ahead, there are frequent signs that say, the best is yet to come. Taken as a whole, the story of Ruth, he says, is one of those signs. It was written to give us encouragement and hope that all the perplexing turns in our lives are going somewhere, somewhere good. They do not lead off a cliff. No, no. In all the setbacks of our lives as believers, he writes, God is plotting for our joy. Beloved, do you believe that? Do you believe he is plotting for your joy? Do you believe that all the perplexing turns in your life are leading somewhere good? The book of Ruth teaches us it's true. It's true. But then, just before the curtain falls on this final scene, just when you think this story is resolved and over, this, this masterful storyteller actually leaves the biggest surprise for the end. In the last sentence of his narrative that he adds on in this final closing scene. Notice that the Lord, third, gives and provides not only a son for Boaz and Ruth, a son for Naomi, but notice the Lord provides a king for Israel. A king for Israel. Verses 17 to 22. Look there, verse 17. They named him Obed. Middle of verse 17. They named him Obed, short for Obadiah, meaning the servant of the Lord. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, wait. What? What? Boaz and Ruth's son, Obed, is the grandfather of David. Oh my. And in this additional sentence, the, the narrator now reveals the importance and the significance of this baby that Naomi is holding. This baby this baby who is none other than the grandfather of the great King 
David. Oh my. Oh my. Obed, it just so happens, actually turns out to be none other than the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David, the greatest king in Israel's history. So, Notice then how the book of Ruth actually ends. It ends with this stunning revelation. It ends with this surprising resolution. And now, suddenly, suddenly this sweet love story really now becomes extraordinary, doesn't it? This story actually becomes a much, much bigger story. A much bigger story than Ruth and Boaz, a much bigger story than even Naomi, actually we discover here that this child, this baby boy, actually preserves the royal line of King David. So listen, the book of Ruth, yes, yes, it is meant to show us the providential hand of God in the lives of these individuals. But listen, on a much bigger scale, on a much larger scale, this book is meant to show us that God is preserving the royal line of King David. In fact, notice in verses 18 to 22, this book ends, notice, with a genealogy leading to David. Now, listen, would it surprise you to learn that these are actually the most important verses in this book? (laughs) They are. I mean, you might be tempted this morning, you might be tempted to to view this genealogy as rather stale and boring, right? Sort of optional, like movie credits at the end. No. However, this genealogy is actually central to understanding the purpose of this whole book. Because this genealogy shows us, it reveals, beloved, that this story of Ruth and Boaz is part of a greater story that God is telling. It actually fits into the bigger story of God's redemptive plan that all the hard, seemingly mundane events in the lives of these three ordinary people, the events of their lives have implications that none of them could have dreamed and imagined. So really, that span all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where if you remember, God promised a seed to the woman who would ultimately come to crush the head of the serpent. And then leading to Abraham, the one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then now to on King David, who according to 2 Samuel 7, would have a son who would reign on God's throne forever. And, And even though, listen, the characters in this story couldn't see it, God had a purpose in it all. And brothers and sisters, the same is true in our lives as well. Even though you cannot see it, God has a purpose in it all. And actually your story and my story fit into this story. Because this genealogy, it doesn't end with King David. No, no, in fact this genealogy is going to be picked up again in the New Testament. It's going to be picked up again in in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, where we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So listen, the book of Ruth ultimately points us to the son of David, the greater king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only here 
that we see the true purpose of this book. Really, it's only here that we see the purpose of all of human history, that God is sovereignly, providentially working out his plan in order to save sinners like you and me, that while he, yes, moves in mysterious ways, plans that we don't often understand why, yet behind all of these events, even the frowning providences, His smiling face is at work to redeem the world. And so then, what sort of modern relevance does this passage, Ruth chapter 4, have for our lives today? What does the Lord have for us here? Let me just close with three observations, three applications. Three applications. Application number one. I'm sure you've probably guessed it by now. I'm going to repeat it again this week. Application number one, this passage reminds us to observe the hidden hand of God's kind providence in our lives. This passage reminds us to observe the hidden hand of God's kind providence in our lives. Did you note the hidden hand of God at work here in chapter 4? Don't miss it. It's, it's everywhere here. Let me just note one place in particular. Did you pick it up there, that hint, the very first hint in the very first verse? Notice that word behold, verse 1. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Behold, it, it just so happened, as luck would have it, beloved, the author is screaming at us again. Daniel Block comments, with a superficial reading of the book, the timing of this kinsman Redeemer's arrival may seem coincidental, but a deeper reading will recognize again the hidden hand of God. Brothers and sisters, this is no mere coincidence. This might seem like a non-event, right? Like, like he's just passing by. This is just ordinary legal matters happening. I mean, this is just an everyday real estate deal going down here. But behind it all, the hidden hand of God is working in the ordinary events of life. That just like in chapter 2, when Ruth just so happened to wander into the field of Boaz, here now in chapter 4, this other redeemer just so happens to walk by at that very moment. As one author said, this shows the hidden hand of God at work in the best of times and the worst of times, for God is at work at all times for his people. He's at work at all times, in every event. And listen, in the Christian life, the sovereignty of God, it is often subtle. It is often quiet. It is often non-spectacular. But the book of Ruth teaches us to marvel at the mundane events because God is working even in the ordinary. So don't fail to see it. Don't fail to observe those subtle kindnesses from the Lord in your life, Christian, each and every day. And listen, to my unbelieving friends, to, to my non-Christian friends who are listening in this morning, hear me say that you too are experiencing God's providential kindness in your life as well. Did you know that? 
even though you're not a Christian, you are experiencing his kindness in your life right now. Here's how. The sun rose on you today. He kept your heart beating through the night. He's allowing you to hear this sermon. And even while right now you are living in rebellion against him, he is continuing to lavish his kindness upon you. You know why? Romans chapter 2 tells us it's because God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. He wants to lead you to repentance. Do not presume, friend, upon the kindness of God. Turn to him today and be saved because it just might not be there tomorrow. Repent. Turn to him and be saved. Which leads to the second application. Second application. This passage gives us a picture of God's gracious plan in saving sinners. This passage gives us, God, a great, a, gives us a picture of God's gracious plan in saving sinners. Did you happen to notice the various kinds of people that make up this genealogy leading all the way to Jesus? First, notice Ruth the Moabite. Here's a former pagan, an outsider, a foreigner, a stranger to the people of God. And yet in verse 11, notice the people's prayer for her. Verse 11, may the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. So this Gentile woman has now become part of, included in, the people of God. A Gentile. How so? Well, it's not because of her ethnicity. It's not because of her religious background. No, no. It's because, listen, of her faith. That's the only way you become part of the people of God. By faith, Ruth trusts in Yahweh. She has come under the providential and protective care of Yahweh. And she will even be a mother now in the royal line of Israel, the royal line of King David, and ultimately the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior of the world will have Moabite blood running through his veins. Or notice... Those names mentioned there in verse 12. Judah and Tamar. Judah and Tamar. Tamar, a, a Canaanite woman. Another pagan Gentile. And, and I'm not sure if you've read the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38 in a while. <laughs> you just thought your extended family was dysfunctional? Go read Genesis chapter 38. It's a story of wickedness. It's a story of seduction. It's a story of sin and depravity. And yet these two, these two are in the royal line of King Jesus. Or in Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, the genealogy of Jesus. In fact, you may want to turn there for a moment. Matthew picks up this genealogy where Ruth 4 uh, this genealogy of here in Ruth 4, in verse 5. Notice, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, 
Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and then so on and so forth until you get to Jesus. But notice, notice there, verse 5, that Rahab, remember Rahab? Joshua 1, the prostitute Rahab. Rahab married Salmon, and they had a son named Boaz. So get this, Boaz's mom, the same righteous, honorable Boaz from our story, his mother was a prostitute. And yet she too is in the royal line of Christ. Now why do I point this out? Here's why, here's why. Because there may be some of you here this morning listening in, who are saying to yourself, Pastor, I am unredeemable. You don't know what I've done. God could never save me. And yet, clearly, clearly we see that Jesus himself has in his own lineage Moabites and Canaanites and pagans and prostitutes and adulterers and all manner of sinners with questionable character. I mean, what a family line, right? What a family line. And God could have chosen any family for his son to be born into, but he picked this one. Why? Why? You know what it means? It means, brothers and sisters, that not only should this root out any kind of self-righteous ethnocentric, racist impulse in us. It should root it out. But it should also show us that no one, I repeat, no one is unredeemable. No one is beyond the hope of salvation. That salvation is for anyone who believes, no matter what you have done, no matter your past, no matter how messed up you are, no matter your family history and background, no matter what you have done or you haven't done, this gospel of grace is for any sinner who will fall on their faces and say to Jesus, as Ruth did to Boaz in chapter 2, be my redeemer crying out for mercy before the Redeemer himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will. He will save you. He will redeem you. Friends, that's the story of Ruth. That's the story of the gospel. And we see it here. We see God's gracious plan being worked out in saving sinners like you and me. Which leads to the final application this morning. Final one. Final one. This passage calls for us to marvel at our Redeemer King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the book of Ruth, not just chapter 4, but the entire book should cause you to marvel at your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. That ultimately this story, and really every story in the Bible, it's about Jesus. He's here. Do you see him? He's the seed of Eve. He's the son of Abraham. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the son of Boaz. He's the son of Obed. He's the son of Jesse. He's the son of David. He's the son of Mary. He's the son of God. It's all about him. Now where do we see him here in this text? Because we see this in light of the New Testament, but where do we see him here? 
is the Old Testament author writing with King Jesus, the Messiah, in view here? Well, notice. Notice that I, I didn't really address verses 14 and 15 before. So go, go back for just a moment to verses 14 and 15. Look there, verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who's not left you with this, left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Now I'm not sure if you noticed it as we read these verses a moment ago. But who is Naomi's redeemer in verse 14? Look there. Who's her redeemer? Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. Now, who is her redeemer? Who, who is this redeemer? And, and you and I, we would probably be tempted to say, well, Boaz, of course, right? He's the redeemer. He's Naomi's redeemer. Isn't that what we've seen in this book in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4? Boaz is the redeemer, right? But, but, keep reading, keep reading. Verse 15, he, Naomi's redeemer, shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, Ruth, and then notice the end of verse 15, she has given birth to him. Him. So wait a second. Let's rethink this now. So who is Naomi's redeemer? Verse 15, she has given birth to him. Who's the redeemer? Well, ultimately it isn't Boaz. It's the baby. The baby. The redeemer is the baby. However, this Redeemer isn't ultimately found in Obed. That, that's, that's what this whole genealogy after Obed is meant to show us. No, Obed, Obed simply personifies the Redeemer. Obed simply pictures the Redeemer. Obed simply points to a greater Redeemer who is coming, a Redeemer from the line of Boaz. And so listen, we, we should read verse 14, not so narrowly. We could, sure, we could say that Obed, his name would be renowned in Israel, that Obed would be to Naomi a restorer of life and a nourisher in her old age. However, I think, listen, that the author intends for us to look beyond Obed to a greater redeemer who is coming. One whose name would be renowned not just in Israel, but to the ends of the earth. One who would be the restorer of life, eternal life, everlasting life. One who would be the source of true nourishment, not only for Naomi in her old age, but for the world. Because listen, Naomi herself needed this Redeemer. She needed a Redeemer, just like you and I. She too was a sinner in need of grace, and she too was in need of being redeemed for her, from her sin. So was Ruth, and so was Boaz. And so are you and me. 
And this Redeemer King from the line of David, he is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Who Galatians 3 says, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Who Titus 2 says, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That through his one act of redemption, his one selfless act, at great cost to himself, he has purchased and redeemed us. He has bought us back from sin and death by dying in our place on the cross for our sins, by becoming a curse for us and purchasing our redemption. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our great Redeemer. And it's true. It's true what the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield said about the sweetness of that title, Redeemer. Let me close with this. Here's what he says. There is not one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. Mm. It tells us that we have not merely received salvation from Him, but also it tells us of what it cost Him to secure this salvation for us. Whenever, he says, we pronounce that title, Redeemer, the cross is stamped before our eyes and our hearts. It is filled with loving remembrance. Not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. Let's pray. Father, may our Redeemer's name be renowned. Be renowned not only in Israel, but to the ends of the earth. In this church, in our lives, may the glory of Jesus be seen. We thank you for the book of Ruth. Thank you for this picture of your redeeming grace, your sovereign purpose, your plan all along to save and rescue sinners like us. Thank you for the grace of Christ who is our Redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.